ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, Minefield listener, Scott Stevens here. This discussion covers topics such as genocide and torture, and it may be distressing to some listeners. Welcome to The Minefield, a show where we try to negotiate the ethical and moral dilemmas of modern life, sometimes just examine them and leave them more or less untampered with. Which doesn't help many people, I suppose, but at least helps us try to come to terms with it in some way, and maybe occasionally you as well. Well, Lee Daly is my name. Scott Stevens is my co-pilot in futility. Hi, Scott. <laughs> co-pilot in futility. That sounds like, that, that could be a really good name for a band, don't you think? Or an album. Or an album. Yeah, you're yeah, going to send a suggestion through to Pink Floyd or something? Or? <laughs> well, they're not very active anymore. No, they're not. There'd no. be one or two other bands maybe that could, okay. could do right. something like that. Fair enough. Yeah. Hey, we're doing something today we've never really done before. I mean, we don't <laughs> often do... How can you put it? The philosophical canon. You know, the questions that have such a long and privileged place within the history of moral philosophical debate. And in this particular case, also theological philosophical debate. We're trying it. We're trying our hand at it. We're going to try not to be... Hang on. This is a different show to what I thought we were doing. Really? Yeah. I mean, we, okay. we touched on it with Susie Kilmister uh, when we tried to get our head around human suffering, human lives. But today we're going for the problem of evil. And there is no topic in the history of moral, philosophical, theological debate, I think, that has proved to be more thorny and more contentious than that problem. The problem of evil, historically, let's just say, is a kind of theistic question. The problem of evil usually goes something like, how is the existence of an all-powerful and utterly benevolent deity, how is the existence of that kind of divine figure compatible with the calamities and the suffering and the immiseration and the seemingly senseless violence and meaningless tragedy that takes place in a world like ours. In other words, the problem of evil is usually a way of trying to render the existence of the one compatible with the existence of the other. And usually in this kind of calculus, it's the existence of God that needs to be defended over and against evil. So you have, for instance, in someone like uh, St. Augustine or Maimonides, uh, both of them tended to so define evil in a way that evil can't really be seen as having any substantive or necessarily nefarious quality at all. Evil doesn't exist. It's just it's the so-called privation theory. Evil is, is the absence of something that is otherwise good and substantive. These might even apply to, say, human desires that are otherwise good, human desires for the transcendence. But when those human desires then get attached to the wrong thing, that then becomes all manner of perversion, bloodlust, malice, and, and so on. Um, the other great tendency, which I've always found really spurious, uh, I'm not sure where you are on this, I'm not, I'm not sure if I want to ask you about this, but has been to so define evil that there's always a telos to it. In other words, things might seem meaningless, but that's just because of the particular perspective we occupy. Whereas this particular tragedy, yes, it seems horrible. Yes, the loss of life was unimaginable. Yes, the extent of human uh, immiseration, uh, decrepitude is such that it threatens to suffocate the imagination. But viewed from another level, all of these things had ultimately good purposes in the end. So those tend to be the two dominant ways of solving the theistic problem of evil. I, I don't find either humanly satisfying, much less morally satisfying. I don't know if you want to say anything about that, Willie, but this is not really what we're talking about today. <laughs> I know. This is what I thought we weren't talking about. <laughs> Do you want to add anything here, though, just before we move on? Uh, I would only flag that I... You and I are different I just, on this point, I think. It's I don't find this a problem. Yeah, I know you don't. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> All right. So what we're going to talk about instead. So that's the problem of evil. And it is a problem for a lot of people. And I would be shocked if people haven't been through a particular moment in life where you stare up at the heavens at something that you've seen or something that's happened to you, and you just ask why. I mean, that is the most human expression, I suppose, 
of the philosophical problem of evil. Why? Simone Weil put it beautifully where she says that comes a moment in the human soul where uh, that which is most beautifully human cries out, why is this happening to me? Um, the problem of evil mm, that... Yeah, okay. Okay. The problem of evil that we're talking about is the problem of quote-unquote evil. So under what conditions, under what circumstances can we describe an act or a person as evil? You know how sometimes you pull out your favorite quote from Bernard Williams' Truth and Truthfulness? Yeah. Can I read you one? This is something I've, I'd read it and annotated it a long time ago. It's from a book by a person who I know and love. And I thought of you instantly. It kind of picks up on the show that we did about deaths that matter to us and deaths that don't. This is from Susan Niemann's great book, Moral Clarity. She's commenting on a remark made by Donald Rumsfeld after the images from Abu Ghraib came to light. Rumsfeld commented, what happened at Abu Ghraib was not right, but it's not the same as cutting off someone's head in front of the video camera. Now, this is Neiman. It's not the same thing, but if you think that evil has an essence, can you draw the conclusion that Rumsfeld wanted us to draw, namely that one of those actions is evil and the other is simply too bad? The differences are abundant. One of these evils is visible, the other is still not. One of these evils is the product of ruthless individual will, while the other is produced by a large, complex system that makes it easy for individuals to evade responsibility. One of them takes death as its clear-eyed goal, the other as an unfortunate byproduct. One of them reduces people to shivering, pale heaps of terrified flesh in tears on a screen. The other reduces them to naked, faceless bodies. What they have in common is a willingness to use methods so loathsome that they create enemies left and right. But the biggest difference is probably this one. Since one of the perpetrators is so much more powerful than the other, its effects are likely to last longer. Abu Ghraib confirmed the world's nightmares, creating hatred and suspicion of the U.S., the West in general, and anyone in the future who's inclined to say a word, however sincere, about defending human rights against dictators. I found that fascinating, that one exhibits the kind of malice, the kind of malevolence, the kind of cruelty, and even personalism that we often use the word evil to try to grasp. Remember, Joe Biden used precisely this term to describe what took place on the 7th of October. This is indiscriminate evil. Whereas the other, because it's more institutional, because it's more in some ways contemptuous of the human bodies that are being displayed, that are being humiliated, but also because it takes place in that larger institution, we might regard it as horrible. We might regard it as disgusting. But it goes against, in many respects, the way that we tend to use the term evil to describe that second in other words, the humiliations of Abu Ghraib, the humiliations of indefinite detention, uh, the humiliations that take place as part of one's imprisonment. We tend not to describe those as evil, and yet in their effects and in their enduringness, there's a very real case that could be made for why those things are more deleterious and, in fact, more collectively evil than individual acts of malice or cruelty or malevolence. Mm. So what that's doing then is it's tying the notion of evil to effect or consequence. Maybe even than... size, maybe even size or extent. The extent yeah, to which but... it, it evacuates from the world the ability to have confidence in something that ought to be regarded as otherwise good. Mm. Look, I see this argument. I mean, this, this is the basis of a concept like structural violence, mm, right? That's right. The idea that there are people who die via direct personal violence and then there are those who die via impersonal forces such as poverty, starvation, etc. 
And the point being that those people are no less dead. It's just that we don't appreciate that death in the same way because it lacks a really direct visible agent, mm. right? Um, or it maybe even lacks the emotional content that often goes along with things that we often associate with evil, like, say, malice or cruelty or malevolence. Yeah. I'm not saying I, mean, I, I agree with Susan Neiman, by, to, by the way, but I thought it was an interesting um, exhibit. Well, no, no, it, it distills the issue out. I mean, it's... Yeah, this is the similar point. Was it Hayek who made this point Ooh, about the concept of social justice? Yeah. So if I have this right, I, there was a time I would have been able to quote stuff at you. I wrote about it a while ago now. You're but, getting um, old, my friend. You're getting old. Yeah. The idea that social justice is a meaningless concept because where unjust outcomes occur as a result of the market or what we might perceive to be unjust, they're not really unjust because that's just the market working things out. So you could have the same result of, say, inequality or impoverishment or whatever. If it's afflicted by someone, that might be unjust. But where that's just what the market has to deliver, then injustice is not the right term for it. So he objected to the very notion of social justice, which obviously has very you know deep roots in, for example, the Catholic tradition. Mm. So, yeah, so I'm familiar with this sort of idea, or this argument, I should say. It becomes complicated for me where you try to drop a word like evil in mm, there. I agree. Because injustice and evil... Put it this way, if they're the same thing, then you either have to enlarge the concept of justice or you have to shrink the concept of evil. Exactly. Dilute it a mm. little bit. So if by evil you mean something that is merely a heart of darkness, something that serves that which is bad pretty much for no reason other than that it is bad or that it serves oneself. Like that, that's a very um, concentrated form of evil, shall we say. And that's how I tend to think of it. Mm. And when you think of it that way, you're talking about very small number of people, a very small number of events, a very small number of phenomena that I think can truly answer that description. And there would be truly horrifying things even things that I would and that most people would wish to condemn, that I would still be reluctant to call evil as though this were a sufficient one-dimensional explanation of mm. it. The thing about that form of evil is it's kind of irredeemable. There is That's right. there's sort of no way back from it. And because I tend to think of evil in those terms, it's a word I very, very rarely mm. use. I know that. Because I find it hard to think of phenomena that would genuinely answer to that. I can think of phenomena that we might say, you know, a caricature of which would answer to that. But not that actually in its essence really has nothing else to it but but evil. Mm. At the same time, I do believe there are human inclinations towards evil occasionally, right? So we might have, I might have an inclination towards certain wrongs and you might call that feasibly an inclination to evil. But that's, that's different, I think, to characterizing a thing or a person as evil. It's just a word I would use so vanishingly rarely. But that's just my choice of hmm. how I wish to deploy that word. And and so in the end, I wonder how we avoid this becoming a semantic conversation. No, I don't think it necessarily needs to be just a semantic conversation, but I think we need to think about and draw out some of the implications of what it is you've just said. I think there's a huge problem if we use the word evil too liberally or too loosely. There's a profound problem. Uh, I think it does have a place in moral rhetoric properly considered. I think it might even have a place in political rhetoric properly used. But I'm concerned that we're beginning to use it a little bit too easily in some circles and to use it opportunistically as a way of characterizing and painting, say, one's ideological or political opponents because of the other implications that I think a word evil bears along with it. Let me just deal with the first point before I deal with the second. Um, I don't know if you saw, Waleed, but Donald Trump described those people and that judicial process in one of his many indictments as the most evil and heinous abuse of power. Now, we know why he's yeah. doing that. It's because of the Manichaean 
dualistic universe that he's trying to project in front of him and enlist his followers into. It makes sense. These people are enemies. These people are threats to the nation. If we lose to them, we lose everything. You can understand how evil rhetoric fits within that. You can also understand immediately, I think, where the evil rhetoric begins to become internally corrupted. But then you have someone like Robert De Niro, a longtime opponent of Trump, a visceral disliker of Trump, refer to Trump himself not as bad, but as evil and as a wannabe tough guy with no morals or ethics. So again, you have a kind of tit for tat where what you're trying to say is this person is so beyond the pale that, okay, then this is the next question, dot, dot, dot. What then follows from calling someone, calling a movement, calling a phenomenon evil? Because usually what that means is any compromise, any negotiation, any accommodation with is prescribed in advance. There is no appeasement. If you appease, if you compromise with evil, you are tainting yourself as a result. You're backing yourself to be vanquished. Yes, it is simply to be vanquished. And that's why I think some of the ideological uses of really morally loaded words like evil, but not just evil, uh, I think becomes really problematic because you're saying that this thing, this movement, this disposition is beyond reconciliation. It's beyond redemption. It's beyond negotiation. It can only be extinguished. It can only be exterminated. So you've got, I guess, the danger on the one hand is that there is a kind of loose or liberal use of the term evil and its use in kind of opportunistic and ideological ways. And then there's the other issue, which I think you rightly flagged, which is that evil comes to be used for such a vanishingly small category of people. So someone like the Joker in the Batman mythos, or say Iago in Shakespeare's Othello. Othello refers to him at the very end as a demi-demon who has possessed my mind. One of the great debates Uh, quandaries about Othello is why does Iago do what he does? There seems to be no telos to it, no point. He just wants wantonly to destroy and infect lives. And then you've got the usual suspects like Hitler, Stalin, Pol Pot, and then you usually have evil assigned to terrorist groups, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, Hamas after the 7th of October. So, You've got those two poles. You've got evil used opportunistically and for democratically and morally really problematic ends. If you're surrounded by evil actors, evil phenomena, then uh, compromise, negotiation, deliberation is ruled out. Or if you use it too selectively, then it becomes that limit case that means that unless you achieve this level of perversity, of malice, of cruelty, of heedlessness, of nihilism, then nothing properly can be called evil, which means, I think, and this is where I would agree with someone like Susan Neiman, especially to the degree that she, I think, is trying to channel both Immanuel Kant and Hannah Arendt, that one of the problems with so narrowly defining evil as kind of pure malevolence of the Iago or the Joker variety or the Hitler variety, is that it blinds us to the many ways in which we can become, through our heedlessness, through our cowardice, through our lack of moral attentiveness, through what Stanley Cavell would call our soul blindness, our inability, our deliberate unwillingness to see, to recognize, to try to bear witness to the preciousness of the humanity of another person. The many ways in which kind of cowardice and heedlessness and inattentiveness and silliness and triviality, and even to use Arendt's term, banality, the way that they might themselves contribute to a force, to a state of affairs that bears such dehumanizing power, that exhibits such wanton destruction on the lives of others, that it can, even though it's not personal, can properly be described as evil. So it seems to me then we have that range, and it's important, I feel, that we avail ourselves of, apart from maybe the looseness, (laughs) the liberal uses of the term, it seems to me it's appropriate 
that we reserve evil for limit cases and yet be incredibly attentive to the ways in which our daily disaffections and daily vices may well be participating in things that are much deeper than we would like to believe. Yeah, that's why I'm not sure I would buy into that analysis you've offered really at all. Because mm. I, I just don't know that it, in the end it's helpful. Like, it's not that I don't see it. It's just that I'm not sure the proper attachment of the label of evil makes a difference. The improper attachment, yeah. So if you get run around calling everyone or of your opponents evil, well, that's a problem because it licenses almost a limitless response. Mm, that's right. Right. I have a problem with limitless responses. Yeah, I know. Which means the use of the label evil doesn't really, well, it almost never helps, does it? Like it might, it might satisfy an emotional need. It may even in certain circumstances be a correct description of things. But I have two problems here. One is the judgment of evil to me is a judgment that should really just be reserved for God. Hmm. There's almost no way to reach it that doesn't require some kind of absolute knowledge of the state of someone's being or heart. Are you saying evil can't apply to something where the intention that participated in it didn't share something of the same malevolent intent? Possibly. I'd I'd have to think more about that formulation, but I think it's possible to talk of evil acts, of evil conduct, of evil consequences. Hmm. I think it's possible to do that. When you start talking about evil as in you are an embodiment of this thing called evil, Hmm. Hmm. you're now making a divine judgment, really. And I'm just, I can't claim divine knowledge. So I, I just am incredibly reticent to do that. I think, though, whether or not you want to attach that label to it doesn't necessarily have to change the reaction. So to take one of these limit cases, take a Hitler. Look, I wasn't around at the time. I don't know what the foreign policy arguments were, but let's assume, as I think is the case, that really the only possible, the only available response to that was military defeat, right? Mm-hmm. There was no other, uh, you know, I, I find it hard to believe that wasn't true, okay? Doesn't matter what label you attach to that. The conclusion is obvious. The response to it is obvious. I mean, it raises questions along the way, the bombing of civilians, etc. but like I'm talking in the broad, right? So respond. What hinges on the label there? A great deal, I think. Before answering, let me take one step back and yeah. just lay one final piece, I think, of the architecture here that I think is significant. I do regard evil not as having grades, but as in itself representing a kind of excess such that it should rule out, it should warn us from going anywhere near it in the way that we might participate, in the way that we might conceive of it, in the way that we might represent it. I'll come back to that last point in a second. Okay. So that's why, for instance... So it forbids certain ways of thinking and talking about it. Which means it makes no sense to me to describe something like torture as a lesser evil. The whole Hmm. rationale behind describing torture as evil is to say that this is something that is beyond the pale of human conduct. It okay, cannot... but here you're talking about an act, right? So, But I would go that far with you. I would be less inclined, and you might just say this is me being too reticent, right? And I admit, I'm, I'm very reticent in this area, right? Possibly, you know, for just reasons that I tend to regard these things in quite absolute ways that might be unnatural or unusual, right? But... I would be less inclined to declare every torturer evil. Hmm. So the torture, the torture I will accept is, but to just as a matter of like, I don't know, an epistemic limit, everything I would need to know to pronounce an absolute judgment, I, I just can't. But what what you're saying there is that a role can't be evil. 
a role that somebody occupies can't be evil. And I would disagree profoundly no, with that. No, I think a role could be. Okay. And if someone inhabits that role. Yeah. Let me go back to the Hitler point, though, because I think the reason I wanted to mention the whole kind of grades or degrees, or I don't think there is a hierarchy of evil, for instance. I think once we yeah. describe something as evil, that's a, that's a limit. Yeah. Um, was it wrong for the Allies to conspire with, to be in alliance with, Stalin? Given mm. what Stalin did, given the enormity of the death, the immiseration, the starvation that he inflicted, I think Stalin is one of the great villains in human history. I think what he did within Russia's borders and what he did in the suffocating starvation of the Ukrainian kulaks was unconscionable. It wasn't wholly unjustified, though to ally with Stalin towards the achievement of a particular end. One of the cases that Avishai Margalit, the great Jewish political philosopher, has made is that there's little doubt that Stalin was, for instance, wicked. He is rightly contemptible. But not evil. But what Hitler did was to strike at the very heart of the conditions within which morality is conceivable by the active denial of the possibility of the fundamental nature of human equality, dignity, preciousness. Through the very exterminatory genocidal act of striking at human plurality as such, which is the way that Hannah Arendt put it, there is something about that particular orientation that goes beyond wickedness, that tips off the edge and corrupts, corrodes, tries to destroy the very conditions, the very categories that govern human morality. And for that reason, Margalit says, that while Stalin may well have been wicked, possibly even small e evil, he then says that Hitler was radically evil in a way that any alliance, that any appeasement would have been subject to the fiercest moral condemnation. That seems that seems about right to me. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that I would disagree with it particularly. Like I'm not I'm not here mounting an argument to say you shouldn't be saying Hitler's evil. Like I'm, that's, <laughs> that's not what I'm doing. I think I'm all I'm saying is I just don't know that anything turns on it. Mm. And this is why I fear we're really just having a semantic discussion. Because all the calculations you mentioned, including alliance with Stalin, I think they're possible with or without a discussion about the nature of evil. Yeah, I don't think I agree. I, I think it's not just a useful term. I think it's a useful category. I, I accept that as a, almost as a theological premise, I accept Okay, that. interesting. I don't know. Maybe all I'm saying is some things are so big and so absolute that they're just best put in other people's hands than mine. Sure. Uh, as is customary, we have a guest to come along and sort us out. Scott. Yeah, yeah. Well, our guest is pretty much, I mean, if we had to construct a guest in a lab, I'm pretty sure this is it. Luke Russell <laughs> is Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Sydney. He's the author of a wonderful book called Being Evil, A Philosophical Perspective. And just because he doesn't like ending on a down note, he's also written a very nice recent book called Real Forgiveness. Luke, welcome to The Minefield. Thanks very much for having me on the show. So you've heard the way that we're trying to negotiate this particular field, this terrain. Where do you want to pick things up? Okay, so it is really difficult to think clearly about evil. And this is a topic that creates interesting disagreements amongst people who have a lot of moral common ground. Mm, it's true. Uh, so it's no surprise for us to be really, you know, getting into arguments with people who have a different moral worldview. But one of the fascinating things about evil is you can have two people who both want to really strongly morally condemn a particular action or person, and one of them will say, yeah, so he's evil, and what he did was evil. And the other person will say, hang on, <laughs> not so sure about that word. What does that mean? Right. And so this, I think, is a really interesting challenge for philosophers. And Waleed was asking, well, why do we need the word evil? Could we just say what we need to say with other words? Uh, and I think that's entirely possible, right? This is an open question as to whether evil is 
necessary for us to be clear and coherent moral thinkers. But I don't think that settles the the interesting question about evil for me, because as a philosopher, I notice people using the word evil, judging that certain actions or certain people are evil, and I want to make sense of that. I want to understand what they're saying and try and figure out whether I agree with what they're saying. So whether we could paraphrase claims involving evil using other terminology is an interesting question. But that, if we can do that, that doesn't in itself show that we should drop the word evil or we should say there's nothing useful being done by that word. Hmm. So one thing that I want to pick up on in the discussion that you are having is a point that both of you are making. There's an important distinction between judging that an action is evil and judging that a person is evil. And this is something that often gets lost in discussions about evil. So I actually share the view that both of you were endorsing there about what it is to be an evil person. So roughly speaking, I would say an evil person is someone who is not just inclined to do morally terrible things, to perform the worst kind of wrong actions, but someone who we can't fix. So I think when you are judging that someone is an evil person or a group are evil, you're saying, let's treat them as write-offs. We cannot get in there and change their mind. We should just think they are going to do horrible things no matter how we treat them. And that, I agree, is why it's a really high-stakes judgment to judge that someone is an evil person. Because you're saying, don't try and fix them. There is no reform available here. I think that's very different from what's going on when you condemn an action as evil. And the philosophers who've written about evil regularly say, not every evildoer is an evil person. That's a a nice phrase capturing this idea. You might be someone who has done something evil, but it's a big step up to judge, oh, you're an evil person. This is not a problem that occurs only in relation to the concept of evil. There are all sorts of evaluative categories that we apply to actions, but also to people. Even virtue. I mean, you can argue the same. Right, fantastic, yeah. So virtue, courageous, honest. So you might say someone performed an honest action, but it's very different to judge that someone is an honest person. That judgment involves some kind of evaluation of their whole character, and maybe an evaluation of how reliably they will be honest, you know, how firmly fixed that character is. So you'll find lots of philosophers who are talking about evil actions, condemning certain wrongs as evil, but leaving open the question as to whether that evildoer is capable of undergoing moral reform and becoming a good person. So I'm on the side in this debate which says, We ought to be comfortable judging that the most extreme moral wrongs are evil, but we ought to be very cautious in relation to judging whether a particular person is evil. Now, having said that, I think there are some people who've given us pretty clear evidence that not only are they disposed to perform the worst kind of wrong actions, but that they are unfixable. There are other philosophers who disagree with me on this. But I think if you look at some ideologically committed war criminals, uh, they've given us pretty clear evidence that they're never going to change their mind. And I think if you look at a serial killer like Ted Bundy, who performed the most horrendous abduction, rape, torture, murder of victim after victim, and then was locked up in prison and then broke out of jail and went straight back to it, someone who was ultimately captured put on trial, never apologised, never confessed that what he did was wrong. I think this is someone who's given us pretty clear evidence that he is beyond redemption. He's not someone who could ever become a good person. Can I'll, I just pick up on this? I want to explore this with you, right? So let's let's depersonalise it because then it becomes a thing about how could you say this about that person? I don't mm. want to do that, right? But yep. let, let's take the hypothetical serial killer or whatever, someone who's behaved in that kind of way. What if there were some fact, let's call it fact X, about that person that would suddenly cast them in a different light? Let's make up a fact like that. That person is born with some kind of psychological condition that we discover down the track or something. 
that means they carry, this act is almost coded in them. They carry some kind of compulsion to do that in the way that the rest of us might carry compulsion to drink water or something. I appreciate this is a wild scenario, but I'm just trying to establish a theoretical idea here. The action doesn't change its character. You can call the action evil. And this is, I guess, partly the point Scott's been urging on me forever, that you can judge a thing irrespective of intention. Yeah, (laughs) the effect doesn't change also. The effect doesn't change. And I would even argue the nature of the act qua act, Mm. right? But would you be forced in a circumstance like that to revise your judgment of that person? In other words, can you imagine a scenario or a discovery of some sort or whatever that might cast the moral judgment that we will infer from someone's actions in such a way that we kind of have to admit there's a shortfall in our knowledge or a shortfall in our understanding that allows us to make the kind of absolute judgment that you're talking about? Yeah, so these are great questions. And I think what's underlying those questions is actually a deeper question about moral responsibility. It's about blameworthiness. Yeah. Yeah. And that comes up not just for extremely wrong actions, it comes up for minor wrongs, it comes up for virtuous good actions, right? So we've got this thousands of years of philosophical debate about free will and moral responsibility, and certainly we might judge that an action is harmful and remains harmful, even if we discover that the person had no control over it and is not really properly responsible and not blameworthy for So someone who's psychotic, for example, that might have been a neater way of explaining it. Okay, so there are some moral categories, including harmful, which I think are unaffected by the question of whether the agent who performed the action is acting freely, is blameworthy or not. Now, it's a really interesting question as to whether the category of evil is like that. Evil Mm. actions are ones that are, you know, really harmful, regardless of whether the agent is properly acting freely and is blameworthy, or... My own view here would be to say, hang on, I think that calling an action evil implies that it's culpable wrongdoing, right? So I would say if Mm. we discovered that someone really had no freedom at all over what they'd done, then I would say this person is nonetheless really dangerous, someone who potentially needs to be locked up and kept away from others, but I might judge that person is not blameworthy for what they've done and what they did was not an evil action, right? So I think Mm. evil, when it's applied to actions as well as when it's applied to a person, implies culpability or blameworthiness, right? So I've got maybe slightly different intuitions to you about those cases. No, not necessarily. I I think it's... Okay, let's play with that again. Let's assume it's not a total compulsion, but it's a thing that makes someone in a probabilistic sense 90% likely. Okay, so to now, do that, right? There are all sorts of things I'm ninety percent likely to do that are not as extreme as that, but I will nonetheless fall into them. Yeah. So um, this is going in a different direction. These these are tough questions, but I think there's a whole lot of inconsistency in the way that we think about these issues, right? Yeah. All of us, all of us, you know, nice people who are, you know know each other, and we're friends with each other. We've got very, very strong dispositions to act in certain nice and friendly ways towards each other. And that doesn't lead us to say, well, no one's ever praiseworthy for being a nice, friendly person. There's all sorts of cases in which people are very strongly disposed to act in particular ways and we praise them for doing so. So there are interesting symmetry questions here about the dispositions that we have, um, the freedom that we have in relation to positive actions and negative actions. So I'm, I'm pretty skeptical of the idea that just because you've got some disposition that disposes you towards doing really harmful things, that means it wasn't really your fault. After all- No, that's a different question though, by the way. I'm not saying about fault. I'm talking about once it gets to the category of evil. Yeah, so I think when you're calling something- absolute category. I think when you're calling an action evil, you are saying it was the person's fault. I think that is an implication of that judgment. Yeah, no, I accept that. But are you necessarily saying the person's evil. No, absolutely not, right? That's, so yeah, one of the one of the main uh, points in philosophy of evil is not every evildoer is an evil person. So uh, in many cases you might say and this is the kind of thing you might say about the torture carried out in Abu Ghraib for example. You might say that's 
an instance of wrongdoing that is so wrong, so egregious, that it should be called evil. And then it's a separate question as to whether the soldiers who did that are also evil people, or whether you might think this is an extreme kind of wrongdoing that should be condemned of evil, but the people who did it are not irredeemably morally corrupt. They might see the error of their ways. We might want to say that they are people who can reform and become good people. We've seen this in extreme cases, even within Pol Pot's regime, for example. The I'm trying to remember the name of him now, but there's one particular man who was quite senior in that who's come out and said, yeah, I'm remorseful, etc. Yeah, repentant war criminals. This is a fascinating, it's harrowing reading. But as you mm. say, there are cases where people really do seem to have reformed and have deep remorse as to what they've done. So I'm really interested in this distinction, especially when we think of something that really was horrific, like Abu Ghraib. Because on the one hand, you were saying that, okay, the forms of degradation, of dehumanization that were taking place uh, in and through that particular form of detention, imprisonment, torture, uh, humiliation, that it's a regime, it's a system that could be described. It's a series of acts, of interconnected acts that could be described as evil. But the way that we would then evaluate that isn't because each one of the individual things was necessarily, you know, kind of reached, say, a limit, or that the total thing together, you put all of those various forms of callousness and contemptuousness and cruelty together, and then it reaches a certain sum that we could then describe as evil. The fundamental reason, I think, that we would then reach for a term like evil is because of the radically dehumanizing radically humiliating effects that it had on the bodies of those so imprisoned, tortured, humiliated, and so on. In other words, and this is the thing that I wanted to, I guess, introduce before we kind of got into where we were now. It seems to me that one of the essential elements of evil as evil is the dimension of excess or even obscenity, that we reach a particular point where a situation, an institution, a prevailing state of affairs, a policy reaches a kind of moment of such excess, of such cruelty, where, for instance, something that may well have had a purpose, the detention of violent criminals, then tips over into non-teleological activity. This is where we might describe something as being unnecessarily cruel unnecessarily dehumanizing. And it seems to me that it's at that moment when something reaches the level of obscenity, nobody should see this. Nobody should bear witness to this. Nobody should be subjected to this kind of treatment. It's at that moment, I think, where either ongoing participation that then inures one to that condition of obscenity or cruelty or horrified withdrawal, my God, what have I done? My God, what have I been involved in? It seems to me that it's that moment of either leaning into the cruelty or recoiling from it, recognizing, if you like, its full depths. And again, depths that are defined by the effect that it has on something that we might regard as morally precious, as inalienably precious, as Raymond Gaeta would put it. Um, So I, I just wonder if in that circumstance, Yes, we're not talking about evil as being kind of a graded process or even having levels, but you could see something as reaching a particular point where such is the excess, such is the obscenity, that then the moral decision becomes, is this something through my cowardice, through my indifference, or through my habituatedness I lean into, or is it something I recoil from? It's in those circumstances, I think, where I think the category and the particular nature of evil then becomes something that it's worthwhile for us to hold on to without it being simply confined to the limit, so, you know, the serial killer or, or pathological cases, Luke, that you were describing before. Yeah, so there's a lot in that, Scott. Um, you're talking about, I think, in general, a question about the kind of extremity that is required for something to count as evil. And there are really interesting disagreements about this. So different philosophers have proposed different accounts of the kind of extremity required for evil. Some have made claims that mirror what you've just said there in relation to horror, recoiling in horror, judging that this is not just wrong but obscene. 
right? And this is a kind of perhaps emotional marker in us, which marks out a different category of the worst kind of wrongdoing. This is an appealing thought in some ways, um, but I think it's also a potentially problematic thought Mm. because I think I agree with the claim that evil is always extreme, right? Evil is an extreme moral judgment. Evil actions are extremely wrong. But what's the nature of that extremity? And should we say evil actions are wrongs that elicit horror in us? Here's what I think is dangerous about that thought. Some extremely wrong actions are also viscerally disgusting. They involve blood and guts or, you know, suffering that is really in our face and visible to us and present. And those are the ones which are more likely to elicit horror Mm -hmm. in witnesses. But there might be some actions that are morally as bad as those, but are not gory in the same way. Now, I would want to say whether an action elicits horror or not is a separate question from whether it is it has the right kind of moral extremity to count as evil. So that's one worry about linking evil to horror. Here's another one. We can imagine someone when they're first encountering these kind of extreme wrongs, recoiling in horror. But then that same person might be exposed again and again and might become jaded and they might think, here we go again. They might think, this is the worst kind of wrongdoing. I condemn it in the strongest possible terms. And yet I just can't muster an emotionally horrified response. All right, so I think there's a looser connection hmm. between the evil and the horrific. I think evil actions are ones that perhaps we ought to be horrified by, but we're not always horrified by. So I think we, hmm. we need to look in a different direction for an account of the, the kind of extremity that is necessary for an evil action. And what you make me think of there, Luke, is it's been actually rattling around in my head this whole conversation, is what we do with this banality of evil idea. Yeah. yeah. This is, because, it's a related point. Mm, I agree. Mm. Yeah. Because this is the thing that emerges even when you look at the people who have committed horrific war crimes, et cetera. This, actually, let me take it out of the factual into the fictional. This is one of the reasons I love Breaking Bad so much, is that it's, it's a fictional study of how incremental acts, each of which seems to have its justification, and therefore it's hard to categorise as just purely evil uh, in this sort of absolute sense, reaches a point where it culminates in an act that we would point to and say that's evil. But all along the way, there's a certain banality to it, right? There's, There's something about how when something that is evil is broken down into its component parts... It just feels different to us if we're watching it or reading it or or something like that. The thing that scared me most about Breaking Bad, and we've discussed this on the show before, is for how long the audience, and I don't excuse myself, is cheering for Walt, right? Like, we go along a long, long way down this road, some more than others, and it's an interesting question as to where different people stop, but we do that, right? And... That's why I think this becomes a very tricky sort of category because when we describe something as evil, it's almost like we exoticize it. This is one of the other dangers, I think, of of using evil too often is we exoticize it. It's something that couldn't possibly emanate from us. We become incapable of recognizing the potential for evil within ourselves, how in, in different circumstances we might have been the agents of that evil, etc. There's something about the banality of it that is a profoundly challenging and troubling idea for us to reckon with, even as we attempt to categorise things and people in this way. Yeah, so Hannah Arendt is the the philosopher who coined the phrase, the banality of evil. And she did this in response to the trial of Adolf Eichmann, the Nazi war criminal. So Arendt originally, after the Holocaust, in her book, Origins of Totalitarianism, said that the 20th century has shown us a radical new kind of evil, something that we cannot explain by appeal to ordinary motives. And then in in the early 1960s, Arendt attended a couple of days of the trial of Adolf Eichmann, Nazi war criminal who'd escaped to Argentina and then been captured by Mossad agents and taken back to Jerusalem, put on trial. And Eichmann was um, one of the key architects of the Holocaust, right? So 
Arendt describes herself as in anticipation going to this trial and expecting to see, in her words, a monster, Mm. someone who was sadistic and malicious, who was like Iago or Macbeth, the Shakespearean characters, who are self-consciously doing evil, doing evil while knowing that it's evil. And she reported that she did not see that monster in the trial. Instead, she said Eichmann was someone who was thoughtless, who was acting out of ordinary motives, including a desire to be promoted at work, and who was not thinking clearly about the consequences of his actions. So this is really contentious. Mm. Arendt concluded from that not, oh, Eichmann is not a malicious monster, so he's not evil and hasn't done evil. She concluded instead, we've discovered that evil can be banal, that evil actions Mm. can come from ordinary motives. Now, this is a hugely influential claim, but I think whenever we discuss it, we've got to point out Arendt was wrong yeah, about right. Eichmann himself. It's true. So He was unbelievably this, malicious. He, he, was, was, yeah. he was deeply anti-Semitic. Yeah. There's fantastic work that's been done by historians on this point, including Bettina Stagnett's book is astonishing. That, yeah. that more recent book and David Cesarani's oh, book yeah. before that. And, you know, when you actually look at what Eichmann did and what he wrote and his actions through uh, the Holocaust, right, it's completely impossible. He was acting dumb in the trial. And Arendt Mm. fell for it. But that doesn't show that Arendt's claim about the nature of evildoing is incorrect. So uh, there are a lot of philosophers who think Arendt was right in claiming that some evil actions are performed out of completely ordinary motives. And she was right in saying that some evildoers are not psychologically radically different from us. They're not going to stand out as malicious and sadistic. And yet, they might do the most horrendously wrong things. Which is why we'll lead. Interestingly enough, if you don't want to go for the Eichmann example in the same book, Arendt also referred to evil as behaving oftentimes like a fungus. I've always <laughs> quite like that. It kind of creeps over the surface of things and then you only realize, you only realize what you've been participating in too late. And that to me, and here I'm thinking very personally, not in any kind of broader political or social way, but that to me is the the role of evil in my thinking, in my psychology. It's that it allows me to interrogate myself, to pay attention to the fungus, to see at what points I may be cultivating conditions in which that fungus can grow, Mm, etc. That's a whole different conversation. Luke, thank you so much. My it's pleasure. been an invaluable contribution. You've clarified so much. You've given us so much to think about. And, of course, um, we've had to stop far sooner than we would like, which is always a great sign. So really, really appreciate it. Come back anytime. Thanks very much. Great to get the opportunity to talk about this. Luke Russell, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Sydney, author of Being Evil. It's not a how-to guide. It's Being <laughs> Evil, a philosophical perspective and also real forgiveness. I guess for this week's edition of The Minefield, we're done. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.